We have a myth, a national myth, that residential racial segregation happened by accident. Uh, we say that government did not create it. It was created by private prejudice because people wanted to uh, live with same race neighbors or discriminating and whom they sold or rented housing to. Or maybe uh, African-Americans uh, just don't have enough income to move into middle-class communities. Uh, all of these individual personal decisions is the reason why every metropolitan area in the country is segregated. But in fact, this is a myth that we've adopted to uh, rationalize our avoidance of dealing with this massive civil rights violation. again and welcome to Carlos Explains America. Today's episode will be on an issue that is really entangled and really ingrained in our society. We'll be talking about racial inequality. Specifically, we'll be talking about the inequality in two major groups in our country, black and white Americans. Racial inequality is an issue with very real consequences in the lives of millions in our country. Like I said, it's very ingrained in our society. And it's an issue that we're really bad at discussing too. It would be surprising for any non-American to hear that we can't agree that this is an issue that needs to be addressed, and we don't really know if it started by mere accident or that there were policies that strengthened this inequality. Isn't it interesting that we seem to agree that apartheid was a horrible period in South Africa's history, but we can't acknowledge the own policies that we had that try to achieve the same purpose? In order to understand the issue of racial inequality and the consequences it has in people's lives today, we need to take a look back and talk about what set the field for inequality to arise. And to understand 21st century inequality, last century's racial segregation is probably the best place to start. Over the last century, the U.S. government and private institutions have implemented numerous policies and practices to keep white and African Americans separated both physically and in their possibilities to progress. This came through diverse policies and issues like education, bank loans, and housing. These policies directly concentrated wealth and quality education in one group while keeping poverty and crime at bay. That is, concentrating it in the other group. Racial segregation and racial inequality are issues that are very closely tied. And to better understand them, I talked to Richard Rothstein. Richard is a research associate at the Economic Policy Institute as well as a fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He also wrote a book called The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America, which sounds like a very appropriate title for our conversation. Here it is. What policies have fostered racial segregation, and when did these policies come into being? We have a myth, a national myth, that residential racial segregation happened by accident. Uh, we say that government did not create it. It was created by private prejudice because people wanted to live with same-race neighbors, or maybe people just like to live with each other of the same race. Or maybe uh, African-Americans uh, just don't have enough income to move into middle-class communities. Uh, all of these individual personal decisions is the reason why every metropolitan area in the country is segregated. But in fact, this is a myth that we've adopted to rationalize our avoidance of dealing with this 
massive civil rights violation. We abolished segregation in the 1960s and 50s and uh, schools and in, uh, buses and in restaurants and lunch counters. Uh, but we left untouched the biggest segregation of all. The reality is that residential segregation in every metropolitan area in this country was designed, implemented, uh, reinforced and perpetuated by government policy. It's not to say that private prejudice wasn't involved. Of course it was. Without government policy that was guiding, directing, and reinforcing private prejudice, we would not have the residential segregation that we have today. And the government policies go back to the beginning of the 20th century, but the two most powerful ones to create segregation, reinforce it, perpetuate it, were policies of the Franklin Roosevelt administration that began in 1933. One was public housing. The first civilian public housing in this country was built by a New Deal agency, the Public Works Administration. And the Public Works Administration built housing not for poor people. Poor people were not admitted into public housing. It was built for working class families who were employed during the Depression, but for whom no housing was available. And everywhere the New Deal built public housing, it segregated it, creating patterns of segregation frequently in communities that had previously been integrated or that had not known any kind of segregation before. So, for example, the great African-American poet, novelist, playwright Langston Hughes describes in his autobiography how he grew up in an integrated downtown Cleveland neighborhood. He says his best friend in high school was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl in high school. This was not unusual in the mid-20th century uh, for the simple reason that most industrial jobs were located in downtown factory districts, and workers had to be able to walk to work because they did not have automobiles. And so if you had a factory district that employed Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants and Jewish immigrants and rural migrants and African-Americans, they all had to live in broadly the same neighborhoods. Well, the Public Works Administration uh, came into this neighborhood near downtown Cleveland. It was called the Central Neighborhood. It was about half black and half white. Uh, and it demolished housing and built segregated projects, one for whites and one for blacks, uh, creating a pattern of segregation that otherwise did not exist in this area of Cleveland. It built other segregated projects elsewhere in Cleveland and created a, and reinforced a pattern of segregation that otherwise would never have developed. And this happened everywhere. The area between Harvard and MIT was an integrated neighborhood in the 1930s, also about half black and half white. Public Works Administration demolished housing in that neighborhood and built segregated projects that created a pattern of segregation. What was the logic behind these housing policies to be segregated? Why not just create housing for everyone? Well, you're right. It should have been just housing altogether. We have a, a legacy of slavery in this country, an assumption on the part of uh, white elites that African-Americans were inferior. You have to remember that uh, in the 1930s, the country was still being governed by a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant homogenous elite ruling class. So this was not a diverse ruling structure who had assumptions about their own racial superiority. It was not a Southern phenomenon alone. This was implemented by Northern bureaucrat, but I think it has to be understood as uh, one of the legacies of slavery. Uh, as uh, you may know, uh, after the end of Reconstruction, Jim Crow was imposed uh, 
throughout the South as well as the rest of the country. African-Americans were driven out of integrated communities where they had migrated after the Civil War and during Reconstruction. If you're like me and didn't go to school in the United States, or if you weren't a fan of history class, you're probably wondering what the Reconstruction period was. Well, let's talk about it real quick. Reconstruction was the period immediately after the Civil War when the United States had to define itself again. During this time, the country faced the questions of what it would actually look like, how the Confederate States would be joining the Union again, and perhaps most importantly, what would be of black Americans in the country. This is a time when three constitutional amendments came forward. Where slavery was abolished, black Americans would be equal under the law, and black men would be allowed to vote. So it was a period of huge progress for civil rights in some aspects. During the Reconstruction, racial segregation considerably decreased in our country, with services such as public transportation and other public facilities becoming integrated. Predictably, these policies faced a lot of backlash and caused considerable resentment within former Confederates who may have lost the Civil War, but still supported segregation and white racial superiority. And that's what Richard was just referring to. And so these groups, led by Democrats and former Confederate states, began enforcing state and local legislation that effectively enforced racial segregation. These laws, known as Jim Crow laws, took effect in the 1870s and were later upheld by the Supreme Court in the 1890s. They enforced segregation of public schools, transportation, restrooms, and restaurants. And so, while the Union and anti-slavery movements had won the war, it wasn't long until segregation resurfaced, and many of the gains made during the Reconstruction period were lost in some parts of our country until 1965. Back to our conversation, Richard Rothstein just touched on one of the policies that strengthened racial segregation. There was another one. The other major program that the federal government implemented to create segregation was a program of the Federal Housing Administration that was explicitly designed to move the white population, it was a racially explicit policy, move the white population out of cities and into single-family homes in the suburbs. Under this policy, the massive uh, suburbanization that took place in the 1940s and 50s was carried out by the Federal Housing Administration. Perhaps the most famous of these developments is uh, Levittown, uh, east of New York City. It was 17,000 homes. Uh, Levitt, the builder, could never have assembled the capital to build uh, 17,000 homes in one place. No bank would be crazy enough to lend money for such a speculative venture. The only way Levittown could be built was by going to the Federal Housing Administration, committing never to sell a home to an African-American. Uh, with that commitment, he could get Federal Housing Administration approval to get guaranteed bank loans for the construction of his development. Not only did the Federal Housing Administration require that he not sell any homes to African-Americans, it even required that Levitt place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale or rental to African-Americans. This was true throughout the country. 
And in this way, all white suburbs were created uh, surrounding central cities. Eventually, whites all moved out of public housing and uh, most uh, rental housing in central cities. They moved into suburbs, leaving those central cities as all black. At about the same time, industry left those central cities. It was no longer necessary to place industry at railroad terminals or in deep water ports. They could get their parts and ship their final products by truck as highways were being built. So industry left. The African-American population became poorer and poorer. And uh, think about it this way. The, the homes in Levittown, those homes sold for um, oh, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000 in the mid-20th century. In inflation-adjusted terms, that's now about $100,000. Easily affordable to working-class families of either race, uh, especially with a uh, VA mortgage that uh, would require no down payment. It's only twice national median income. Working-class families can afford a mortgage at twice national median income. Well, today, those homes sell for three hundred, $500,000, in some cases even more. They're unaffordable to working-class families of either race. But the white families who moved into these suburbs in the mid-20th century gained over the next few generations $200,000, $400,000 in equity and wealth. Uh, they used that equity to that they gained from the appreciation and the value of their homes to send their children to college. They used it to take care of emergencies. And they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who then had down payments for their own homes. Uh, the result is that today... African-American incomes are 60% of white incomes on average. African-American wealth is 10% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid-20th century. That housing-created wealth gap is responsible for the achievement gap in schools because uh, that is a product of segregated schools. It's responsible for the enormous disparity in health outcomes, life expectancies between African-Americans and whites. It's responsible for the police violence that we see in places like Ferguson and Baltimore and Milwaukee. And it's probably also in part responsible for the racial polarization of our community and politics today, hmm. uh, which partly results from the fact that we're living so separately. There was something really interesting that you said uh, about Levittown. It was the Federal Housing Administration required uh, the, the developers not to sell to African-Americans? That's correct. And this was not um, something that rogue bureaucrats were doing. It was written in the manual of the Federal Housing Administration. The Federal Housing Administration produced something called the Underwriting Manual that was distributed to appraisers throughout the country to guide them in what kinds of developments to recommend for FHA guarantees the underwriting manual specifically said that uh, guarantees could not be given to developments that um, were going to be integrated. It even went so far as to prohibit appraisers from uh, approving applications from developers for uh, subdivisions that were too close to where African-Americans were living because the manual said it ran the risk of infiltration by incompatible racial elements. So this was a written federal policy. There was nothing de facto about this any more than there was anything de facto about labeling some housing projects for blacks and others for whites. This was a, an unconstitutional, explicit written policy. Was this found unconstitutional back when this policy was implemented? In a very few cases, it was. In 1948, the Supreme Court 
prohibited state courts from ordering the eviction of African-Americans who had purchased homes in violation of these policies, in violation of the deed clauses that prohibited them from buying them. They had been evicted in hundreds and hundreds of cases prior to that by courts when they had uh, bought homes uh, in violation of these policies. It happened so often because it was to the advantage of whites to sell homes to African-Americans for the simple reason that African-Americans because their housing options were so much more restricted, were willing to pay more for similar housing than whites were. Mm. So if a, a white family wanted to move and wanted to sell its home, even if its deed prohibited a sale to an African-American, it was to its advantage to do so anyway. And the neighbors would sue to enforce the restriction. And courts would order the eviction of, of uh, the African-American buyers. In 1948, the court prohibited those evictions, but the policy still continued. Uh, it, uh, the FHA continued to um, prohibit realtors from uh, uh, selling homes to African-Americans and the uh, suburbs that it financed, even if it wasn't written into the deeds of the uh, homes. And uh, realtors and builders, developers got around that restriction for another five years by um, putting clauses and deeds that didn't require the eviction of African-Americans, but simply required the seller to pay such an enormous penalty that uh, it was effectively uh, prohibited from uh, selling. But the FHA continued its policy of racial exclusion well into the 1960s. What happened in the 60s? The, the civil rights movement came in and... Once the Fair Housing Act was adopted, um, the FHA no longer uh, required developers to uh, exclude African-Americans from the subdivisions that they were building. Private real estate agents may still have done so, uh, but uh, the patterns were already set by that time, and they weren't doing so uh, by FHA requirement. We'll be right back. talking about the effects and the consequences that the, the, the segregation have had in these days. Could you, could you talk a little bit more about those? The first one I mentioned uh, was the achievement gap in schools. The achievement gap in schools, that is the difference in outcomes between African Americans and whites, is primarily attributable to the social and economic conditions that children come to school with. If you have a, a, a low-income neighborhood where uh, children are concentrated with economic and social disadvantages of various kinds, we will never uh, resolve our education problems so long as we concentrate the most disadvantaged children in single schools in disadvantaged neighborhoods. We know that African Americans have lower life expectancies and worse health of various kinds than whites. That's in large part attributable to living in less healthy neighborhoods, uh, in neighborhoods with more stress, in neighborhoods with less access to healthy food, that's another consequence of residential segregation. But the third consequence is the violence that we see exists between uh, young African-American men who are hopeless without access to schools with high-performing children, in which they can be high-performing, and they act out, and the police react, and the cycle uh, begins and frequently ends in violence. Uh, we have a mass incarceration 
problem in this country as a result, that's also in large part attributable to residential segregation, to the fact that we're segregating and have been segregating the most disadvantaged children in uh, single neighborhoods where every child is, or almost every child is, is disadvantaged. I think it's fair to say that this, the history of these policies and these housing policies altogether are not really part of the mainstream conversation on racial inequality and lack of opportunities for some people. And in the gap in academic performance, economic performance, why do you think that is? I think that's because we have deluded ourselves with the myth that residential segregation, housing segregation, unlike the other segregations that you just mentioned, was nothing that government had anything to do with. It all happened by accident. And it's understandable to think that if something like this happened by accident, happened simply because of uncontrolled human behavior, it can only unhappen by accident. If we understood the history that has now been largely forgotten of how it was government that created these segregated patterns, it's much easier to begin to have conversations of what kind of policies government can enact to undo this segregation. So I think that's the reason uh, we have adopted the national myth. We understand that uh, there were laws that segregated schools. We understand that there were laws that uh, required uh, African-Americans to sit in the back of buses. We understand uh, that there were uh, laws prohibiting uh, African-Americans from um, using interstate transportation on an equal basis. But we don't understand that uh, the housing segregation that we see was also created by government. And because we have this myth, we think there's nothing we can do about it. We accept it as part of the natural environment. And this is not just true of conservatives. It's uh, true of liberals, of Democrats, as well as Republicans uh, and conservatives. It's a, a widespread national myth. Everybody uses the term de facto segregation as though it's somehow just developed uh, without any intent on anybody's part, except maybe for private prejudiced people. Are any of the policies that we've talked about or similar policies still present in our society these days? Well, we don't have the kind of explicit policies that created the segregation that we had in the mid-20th century. But as I indicated, the segregation that was created by these explicit government policies was so powerful that it creates and reinforces the segregation that we have today. The wealth gap alone would uh, ensure enormous racial inequality in this country, even without anything else. But there are other policies that we pursue that reinforce the segregation. Uh, we continue to grant an enormous subsidy to single-family homeowners, most of whom are white and many of whom are in all white suburbs through the mortgage interest deduction and the uh, tax uh, benefits that are given for, for paying state and local taxes. This is a, a, the largest housing program that we run. It's far more expensive than any housing program that we run for poor people or for minorities. And it perpetuates the inequality, the housing inequality that we've created. We have some programs to subsidize the housing of uh, low-income people, uh, particularly minorities, most of, mostly who uh, many of whom take advantage of these programs, but those programs also reinforce racial segregation. Uh, the biggest of those, low-income housing tax credits, it's a tax credit that the IRS gives uh, to developers of low-income housing. 
but this low-income housing is uh, overwhelmingly placed in already low-income segregated neighborhoods, reinforcing that segregation because uh, the uh, middle-class communities typically have zoning ordinances that prohibit it from being built. And if they don't have those zoning ordinances, there's community opposition and the developer has to hold a lot of meetings explaining why they're bringing uh, minority families into the community. And it's much easier for those developments to be built in already segregated communities. And so they do so. Same thing is true of the, the Section 8 program, the Housing Choice Voucher program, uh, that the subsidy to low-income families to rent apartments primarily is used to uh, rent apartments in already low-income urban uh, segregated neighborhoods. It's, uh, the voucher amounts aren't big enough to rent in middle-class uh, neighborhoods. Landlords in middle-class neighborhoods refuse to accept them. Uh, the program is designed to be administered by local public housing agencies whose jurisdictions typically don't extend into the suburbs, so the vouchers can't be used in the suburbs. So these policies uh, don't have to be racially explicit to continue to reinforce racial segregation. We could easily change these policies, but we're not going to so long as we have the myth that the, of de facto segregation. Has the government and our institutions acknowledged its responsibility in current segregation? And have they done anything to make amends with it? No, not really. We haven't done anything to amend it. There, there are some token programs here and there, some... Uh, Civil rights groups have won court settlements that uh, enhance the amount of the Section 8 vouchers they can use that enable some families to move into middle-class communities, but these are very few and far between and token where they exist. So there's been no real effort. I think the first task has to be a uh, recognition and education campaign on the, on the part of the American people, on the part of our leaders, to explain to Americans this history that they have forgotten, it was once well known, uh, but it hasn't been taught to subsequent generations to uh, understand this history, to understand the constitutional obligation that we have to remedy this civil rights violation, because it is a civil rights violation. And if it is a civil rights violation, uh, simply uh, uh, accepting it as something de facto is no longer acceptable. We have an obligation to remedy it. But we won't do so unless we understand the history. I can't pass on the opportunity of asking you if the first African-American president and his administration did anything to try to solve this issue. Well, I think its biggest failure was it did nothing to bring back education about this history. It tried to do some things administratively, but it never would have gotten away with them uh, once people understood what it was doing, because it didn't do the more important role of educating the public uh, about this history. It adopted a rule that required uh, suburbs and you know, all jurisdictions to assess the extent to which uh, they were segregated and why that happened. And uh, in principle, uh, the government could have withheld funds from suburbs that refused to uh, take policies to redress their segregated patterns. But in practice, no funds were ever going to be withheld because there would have been such an enormous uh, uproar about it uh, because uh, nobody understands that this is a, a constitutional obligation. So it would have been seen as Ben Carson sees it, as social engineering, as meddling, as trying to interfere with natural patterns. So it did take uh, you know, these kinds of steps, but without a public understanding and support, they could not have gotten very far, even if a new Democratic administration had been elected. 
Richard, are you optimistic that we can come to terms as a society to understand the history of segregation, the implications, and what needs to be done to fix it? Yes, I am. I'm very optimistic. I'm optimistic because you're recording this podcast and educating your own listeners about it. I'm optimistic because we do have the uh, beginnings of a new civil rights movement in this country. The Black Lives Matter movement has been very, very important. Uh, the uh, actions of uh, Southern white elected politicians to uh, uh, confront the legacy of slavery by removing statues that celebrate slavery and the preservation of slavery is a very encouraging sign. Uh, so I, I do have cause for optimism. Uh, I'm not the... Uh, I don't feel guaranteed that we're going to uh, solve this problem, but I feel like we're in a better position now to solve it than we ever have been uh, before. We're having a more honest and passionate and accurate discussion about race in this country today than we ever had before in American history. Thank you for listening. If you feel like you learned something from this conversation, please subscribe and recommend us. If you didn't like this conversation or if there's something that you think I should change, let me know what I should be doing differently. Carlos Explains America is on Twitter at CExplainsA, that's C as in Carlos, explains A as in America. If there's anything you think I should talk about next, also send it my way via Twitter. Thanks to Richard Rothstein for his time, and we'll talk to you again soon.